Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Welcome back to Keynote. We're on location this week in Munich, in Germany, at uh, the DLD conference, the European conference that makes sense of tech, and one of the Europeans who I most trust on technology is my old friend John Thornhill. He is what the co-founder of Sifted, uh, as well as the former tech editor at the Financial Times, and now a columnist there. His stuff on AI and innovation is always stimulating and well thought out. John, you spoke on this relationship between innovation and AI. Was it a good year for innovation, 2023? And was that because of AI? Well, I think uh, the way I look at uh, AI in a way is that it's, or generative AI in particular, is that it's a scrambling technology. At the moment, I think it's scrambling all kinds of certainties of what technology can do and how it can be used. And I think we're still in that kind of, um, phase where everything is being pulled apart and people are now figuring out how you put it back together again. Um, it's a disruptive technology, it can enable you to do things in very different ways. Uh, personally, I still have a lot of scepticism about some of the use cases to which it can be applied and how people are going to make money out of it and how you're going to have a defensible moat in creating new businesses in this area. But I think it's a kind of wildly interesting time and because so much in flux, it's uh, great for people like you and me to think and write about it. Use this word scrambling. I haven't heard that term before, of course, we think of scrambled eggs. Is AI the scrambler or is it the, the eggs that have been whipped up? <laughs> uh, well, I think AI is definitely the scrambler in this case, and I think the eggs are being whipped up. So when it comes to innovation, what is AI enabling that wasn't possible for before, particularly in 2023? What has in particular generative AI enabled or at least give the potential for innovation that before this year or before this explosion of generative AI didn't seem particularly realistic? Well, I think the promise of it is was put very well by uh, an interview I did with Lloyd Miner, who is the Dean of Stanford Medical School. And he had this lovely phrase that the internet was all about the diffusion of information and generative AI could be about the assimilation of knowledge. And that, I thought, was a wonderful way to put it, that um, the first kind of wave of the internet, we just pumped all of this stuff out onto the internet. And as you've been writing about, Andrew, for a long time now, that was not necessarily a wholly good thing. Um, it did lead to all kinds of bad pathologies that developed off the basis of the internet. The promise of generative AI, I think, is, as Lloyd would think about it, is that you can take a lot of this information and you can recognize patterns and detect um, uh, kind of trends that you were never able to do before using this kind of massive power that we have uh, of AI. And that can, I think, lead to some very interesting areas and in whether it's kind of drug discovery or just the ability to spot patterns in a way that we have never been able to do before. The obvious example of this, not generative AI necessarily, is a kind of deep mind and what they have done with AlphaFold and so on. So I think um, there is a possibility for a kind of new era of scientific discovery and using digital technology in a very positive way. However, on the other side, um, uh, the peril of uh, generative AI clearly is that it just amplifies some of those pathologies that you wrote about on the first wave of the internet. 
um, that it will lead to kind of mass disinformation. It will lead to the injection of whole new kind of fake material, junk material, um, which I think uh, you talk to a lot of scholars now who worry about the pollution of the kind of knowledge base of humanity and whether that will itself lead to the collapse of uh, generative AI models who are fed so much garbage in at the front end that they're going to end up producing garbage at the back end as well. So I think that's why it's such an interesting time at the moment. These issues all have to be worked out. You've touched on the, the way in which these generative AIs have acquired their intelligence. How much of it, John, in your opinion, is derived from the trash, the social media trash? Has it, have, 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 have these AIs, have they trawled through everybody's Facebook and Instagram and, um, and, and Twitter updates? Is, is that where they're getting their intelligence? Uh, well, uh, I mean, clearly the, the biggest of the large language models have ingested pretty much everything that they can lay their hands on in terms of uh, reading all of Wikipedia or all of uh, the academic material that you can get or, or all of the media uh, that is available. So I think it's beyond social media. Um, uh, and you know, I think uh, what we are now seeing is um, rather than these kind of massive models being developed, I think where a lot of the innovation and a lot of the interest is going to develop is in the more focused, smaller, cheaper specialist models that are developing. And I think in those models, you can control a lot more closely what the data input is. You can kind of filter the data that you put into the front end uh, of these models. And to that extent, um, I hope you will end up having less of the garbage coming out of the uh, other end of the process uh, because uh, there is um, more control over how you are using it and there is more kind of feedback mechanisms as well uh, in that kind of specific domain because people can check and verify and understand and contextualize the information that is being produced. John, many people are suing these new platforms, particularly OpenAI, authors, graphic artists, many others have actually appeared on our show, uh, claiming that They've taken data, material, intelligence, words, images, without the permission. How serious a threat do you think these legal challenges to generative AI are? Is it conceivable that they could shipwreck the revolution before it begins? Well, conceptually, I mean, I have a lot of sympathy with the content creators. Uh, I mean, these models clearly have ingested huge amounts of material. Um, and uh, are using it as their training data. So they are very much the derivatives of everything that has been put into the hopper, as it were. Um, that said, I find it very difficult to see what the mechanism is uh, going to be for the kind of reward mechanism and how that's going to be fed back to the creators. On what basis do you do that? Um, and I think the technology is also evolving so rapidly that uh, it might be possible theoretically to do that today, but what happens when you get kind of chat GPT or GPT-7 in the future, uh, where these models evolve, and it will be very difficult to trace back any of the kind of inputs into models like that in the same way that you could theoretically, uh, I suppose, do at the moment. So uh, I think this is going to be a really hot issue. I think that there will also be a number of uh, deals that are struck, and we've clearly seen this uh, between OpenAI and Axel Springer, the OpenAI have paid um, supposedly uh, in the tens of millions of dollars to access um, Axel Springer's content. Um, and Axel Springer clearly, as well as getting kind of monetary reward from that, are also going to be able to use generative AI um, on their own data and to, to create 
new content of their own. So I think we're going to see a lot of deals like that happening. A lot of content creators are going to partner uh, with some of the AI companies in order to come up with these bespoke deals, as it were. But I find it quite hard at the moment anyway to see what the kind of systematic solution is going to be to this. The Axel Springer model, of course, is doing deals with OpenAI. The other model is the New York Times one, who have taken OpenAI to court. You wear two hats as a journalist. You're one of the founders of Sifted, and you're also a longtime uh, writer, journalist, editor at the FT. Which of those stretches do you think is correct? Hmm. Uh, well, I should make absolutely clear, I do not speak for the FT uh, because you know, I don't hold any uh, kind of commercial position that gives me any validity to say this. So, I mean, this is very much a kind of personal view, but I sympathize with both of those arguments in a way. Um, I think uh, when you read the New York Times case, it's really pretty compelling um, that uh, uh, these systems are able to mimic in a quite uncanny way uh, content that has been produced by in the New York Times and they legitimately have copyright over that material and they should be rewarded for uh, the use of that material. That said, um, you know, I think that the OpenAI uh, Axel Springer deal is also really interesting. Uh, you know, I mean, that is in a way uh, a way of rewarding uh, content creators. Um, and I think that that is going to be built on. I think we're going to see many examples of these kinds of deals happening. Um, where all this shakes out at the end of the day, I have no idea. But I think um, these two tensions in the system, as it were, as it were are going to kind of be the ones that are going to pull us in a new direction. Tim O'Reilly was on the show last week. He told me uh, that he got a call from Sam Altman, uh, not just a friendly call. Sam wanted to do a deal with O'Reilly Media, perhaps similar to Axel Springer, perhaps Tim suggested uh, uh, Altman didn't offer enough money. Uh, is there a danger that because OpenAI has raised so much cash uh, through venture money, through its partnerships with Microsoft, they can essentially pay off these media companies? I think that that is a very real possibility, isn't it? That, um, you know, Karl Marx said that the capitalists would sell the rope with which to hang themselves. Um, I wonder whether the kind of content creators, in a way, are going to do deals uh, with the AI companies today um, and get some money out of them, uh, which will be helpful and sustain their businesses for a while. Uh, but as I say, I mean, in the future models are going to be a lot less reliant on this original content. Um, and so I think that the debate might w well evolve and move off in a whole new direction, uh, which weakens the content creator's ability to extract any money. I did a panel here today, uh, John, on regulation versus innovation. We had a, an EU uh, uh, MP who, who, who spoke about the need for regulation. She, uh, Eve Maydell, she's one of the architects of the EU's new uh, AI bill. What's your sense of these early attempts to regulate does there need, are, are we too early? There were other people on the panel who suggested that it's impossible now to regulate. It's simply too early because it's like regulating car crashes uh, before there are any cars. Well, the old saying about regulation is that it is either too early or it's too late. Um, uh, you, there's never an optimal time to regulate. I mean, I think the good aspects of the EU AI Act are 
that it is forcing people to think about uh, what are the threats of this technology, what are the dangers, how can we mitigate those risks. Um, and that's a very worthwhile debate to have. And I think in the same way as the GDPR debate did force a lot of um, tech companies to think about how they use data, um, that was a good debate to have. Uh, you can quibble about what the outcome was necessarily and whether it succeeded to the, um, and succeeded according to its original aims. But I think it did force a very healthy debate and focused attention on what we use with data. And in a similar way, I think the EU AI Act uh, will force uh, a debate. I mean, it's a real piece of legislation that's uh, going to get enacted and it will have real world consequences. That said, um, I talk to a lot of startups in Europe who are very concerned that it will hobble um, the EU or Europeans uh, companies' ability to compete in this world. It is evolving incredibly fast. A lot of the definitions are very loose. Uh, so there's, I think, rightly, to my mind, a focus on kind of use of biometric data and the ability of generative AI systems to use those. That absolutely makes sense, I think, when it comes to facial recognition technology. I think it's um, there should be restrictions on how companies and the police um, use facial recognition technology and AI-enabled technology in that area. That said, I mean, if that catches medical research companies that are also using uh, biometric data uh, for their um, purposes, that would be a bad thing. So I think um, the intent is fine, but we've got to be very careful about what the consequences are. You mentioned GDPR. One of the great critiques was that the large tech companies, particularly uh, the American giants, were comfortable with it because they have teams of lawyers. My, my wife works at Google. She has 200 people reporting to her. Most, uh, most tech startups can't even imagine having one lawyer, let alone 200 lawyers. Is there a danger that legislation benefits the incumbents, that's one of the criticisms of this current uh, regulation. Uh, one of the other panelists uh, on the panel I did today was from Google, who seems much more uh, comfortable with the idea of major AI regulation uh, than some of the startup entrepreneurs. I think that's definitely true that regulation does very often benefit the incumbent and as you say um, the big tech companies are going to be able to afford the teams of lawyers to enable this not only just to lobby and to shape the legislation itself uh, but also to deal with the consequences of it and for a lot of um, AI startups and investors in those startups I mean I think this is an issue uh, does it mean as one VC investor said to me quite bluntly that uh, the startups that they invest in will have to spend more on lawyers and less on software developers. That clearly affects the business model that they produce. Um, th that said, uh, I think that there is a real benefit into having clear rules of the game. Um, at the moment, a lot of people are building and delivering AI systems in a void. Uh, if there is clarity that is not too punitive uh, on the ability to innovate, uh, I think that would be a benefit, and that's certainly the architects of the EU AI Act. They make that argument, I think, quite strongly, that uh, clarity is also very helpful uh, for startups as well. If you know that these are the rules that you have to abide by, then you know that uh, this is how you have to adapt um, in this world. And in the US, maybe that is more of a concern that you really have no idea what the regulation is that is going to come down the track, if any, um, and whether there is a uh, a division between what the states are doing and what the federal government is doing uh, as well. So 
I think there's something to that argument that um, at least people know the regulation that they have to deal with. But I do fear that it could impinge on the ability of a lot of startups to develop and to scale. John, you're pretty hard-headed in looking at this stuff. You've written a number of interesting pieces this year, trying to distinguish the signal on the noise, trying to figure out what's really happening. We've had Gary Marcus on the show several times. He's speaking at DLD tomorrow, who's quite skeptical of some of the claims, the promises of the current AI, and certainly very skeptical of the idea of uh, AGI. What's your sense of the reality of the technology in 2023 or early 2024? Is it still in the relatively early beginnings? Well, we uh, did a podcast series at the FTU called Tectonic on artificial general intelligence and whether it was real. Uh, Was it something that we needed to worry about today? What was fascinating was that the spectrum of opinion is extraordinary uh, in this area and the divisions are incredibly strong. Um, So uh, I frankly, having interviewed a lot of people in this area, uh, it's quite hard to come to firm definitive conclusions about where we are uh, because I think the debate is so um, spread at the moment and in a very interesting way. So you do have people who argue that artificial general intelligence is a science fiction fantasy that is never going to evolve out of the technology that that we have today. Um, And it's not something that we ought to worry about. And it is a massive distraction from some of the immediate real world impacts of the technology. Uh, Others um, uh, think that um, we are on the cusp of delivering AGI, um, and this might be possible certainly within five to ten years. It's something we absolutely have to think about now. Um, so I, I think it's a both elements of that debate I think are worth pursuing. I don't think it has to be a binary one. Uh, it's very much framed as you're either a kind of Zoomer or a Doomer. Um, and I think that's a bad way to look at it. I think that we absolutely should be looking at the real-world consequences of AI today and looking at algorithmic discrimination or bias or the ways that this does impact uh, societies and the economy as a, la- as a whole, um, the whole issue of kind of job displacement and dislocation. But at the same time, I think it is a very worthwhile debate to have about what are the longer-term consequences of this technology. And when we interviewed, for example, Yoshua Bengio, one of the three kind of pioneers of uh, deep learning technology, who says that he's worried um, about the world that his grandkid is going to come and live in, uh, I think that's worth listening to. Uh, we should be thinking uh, about where this technology is developing and how fast it is developing and what are the concerns that, theoretical though they may be today, but what are the concerns that we should be focusing on in five to ten years' time? John, I know you also carefully followed the the drama of, the corporate drama of OpenAI, Sam Altman, losing his job, getting his job back, the debate about effective altruism. Was that a storm in a teacup or was it more symbolic or symptomatic of uh, debates about both the morality of AI and how corporate governance should exist in these new super companies that are gonna shape and reshape our economy? I think it's a huge story uh, because what we are concerned about is the governance of this technology. How are we going to develop the technology? And at the moment, as we've just been talking about, uh, the regulators, I think, are playing a catch-up game in this sphere. Uh, Governments do not understand where we are going. 
uh, and how it is being applied and uh, uh, lagging well behind the kind of cutting edge of this technology. So we are massively dependent on the technology companies themselves uh, dictating um, what are the terms of trade, as it were, for how we are going to use AI. And so how these companies themselves are managed, I think, are, is of enormous importance. And what was unnerving about the whole OpenAI saga was that that governance procedure clearly didn't work. Um, that we had at the beginning of, or the end of one week, we had the board of OpenAI saying that they thought that the chief executive was untrustworthy. Um, and then within a week, uh, they deemed him trustworthy enough to be given his job back. Uh, so I think there are still a lot of unknown elements of that story. We don't know what all the details were. Uh, they're still emerging. Uh, but I think the governance of the AI companies is going to be of critical importance. And that was not uh, a, a great example of kind of how the tech companies can reassure us that they really know what they're doing. Uh, they are in charge of this technology and they are taking all of the societal considerations uh, into account. OpenAI overall, I guess, in 2023 had a pretty good year. AI, of course, had a great year. Effective altruism had a dreadful year. You had, of course, the, the spectacle of Sam Bankman-Fried, and then you had, it seems at least, the defeat of the effective altruists at uh, OpenAI. What do you make of effective altruism? Is it just more smoke and mirrors uh, by greedy entrepreneurs who want to have their cake and eat it? I think there's something to the original idea of effective altruism. I mean, I think we should be thinking about uh, what kind of planet we bequeath to our uh, successors, and that's particularly uh, the case, obviously, when it comes to kind of climate change. Um, should we be uh, doing more today uh, to help uh, mitigate the risks of uh, climate change? And clearly the answer to that is yes. So I think that uh, we should absolutely think about future generations as well as the people who live on the planet at the moment. However, I think the way that that debate developed was to become incredibly abstract uh, and as you say it did become very much mixed up uh, with the kind of tech community who believed that they were the people who understood uh, where the future was going because they are the ones who are building the future and therefore they had a kind of privileged position and privileged insight into deciding where this world went um, and I think that was very arrogant to assume that uh, they were the only people who should be part of this debate. It has to be a kind of whole of society debate uh, about um, how we govern this world. Um, and so I think um, the instinct was very good, but uh, as we saw, uh, the, the way that it was delivered or developed um, certainly became corrupted. And 2023 also seems to be the year of, of unashamed techno aristocratic libertarianism on the part of people like Mark Andreessen, uh, Elon Musk, Peter Thiel, of course, who's always the, uh, the punch bag for anyone who cares about morality, certainly from the progressive perspective. What do you make of the unabashed aggressiveness of people like Musk and Andreessen, their contempt for the state, for regulation? Indeed, their contempt for everyone, it seems, outside the tech community. Well, I think that there's... Uh, so I think the overwhelming debate is very much uh, one of worry, of pessimism. Uh, and we're all... I think that, uh, one of the striking things about generative AI is how early in the tech cycle uh, we are worrying about the consequences of this. And certainly in a way that uh, we didn't... Um, is not a kind of comparable worry at such an early stage with social media, I think, or the internet. 
although people like you have uh, absolutely kind of focused on what those issues uh, should have been and we should have contemplated them earlier. Um, so I think to some extent they, the Andreessons and the Musks and the Teals of this world are very much fighting against the current, as it were, uh, of kind of ambient pessimism, that, which there is, I think, about uh, technology. So to that extent, I think they can help redress uh, some of the debate, but clearly the extremes to which they have taken it are extreme. Uh, and uh, the, the part of that debate uh, almost becomes kind of parody in terms of only making one argument and ignoring all of the uh, counter arguments that can be made against it. So uh, it is an incredibly partial, limited um, partisan debate that they are conducting. But I think it's because they believe that they have to kind of move the dial on the whole debate, uh, whether they necessarily believe in what they're arguing 100%, uh, I'm not sure. The zeitgeist may have shifted, John, but when you look at the conditions on the ground, more and more inequality, larger and larger tech companies, I think the, the seven biggest American tech companies now make up some absurd proportion of the global economy. Uh, more and more technology, you, the, ubiqu the ubiquity of, of, of smartphones and, and, and other kinds of devices. In that sense, for all the pessimism or suspicion of technology, not much has changed, has it? Well, that's taking me back to what I was talking about with AI being a scrambling uh, technology. I think that's going to be the critical question. As you say, we have the magnificent seven so-called um, in stock market terms who absolutely dominate. I mean, it's hard to think of any companies in history that have been so dominant and powerful. I mean, even going back to the Gilded Age of, of Standard Oil back in the late 19th century. Sure. Uh, so I, I think um, that clearly is an enormous concentration of economic power that we ought to worry about. Um, but what I am intrigued about with AI is whether it will be possible to use this technology to come up with new business models uh, that will disrupt them. Uh, I mean, clearly there's a lot of unease within uh, Google itself, as we have seen about uh, where generative AI is going to take us, whether this does represent a big platform shift that will enable new players to emerge. And I think you're seeing that very much in the debate between kind of closed proprietary models and open source AI models. Um, uh, and ironically, I mean, I think Europe's um, best chance in this area is to really bet on open source models. Um, and because they are, these are models that can be more focused, uh, can be cheaper and smaller, um, but uh, they may well be the kind of models that most concern the regulators because it will it also empower bad people to do things on a scale that um, is very worrying. So there is a real tension, I think, in Europe in uh, how we look at this. Do we want to um, favor the technology and the kind of open source models that can help create genuine competition? Or do we want to kind of uh, put the clamps on them because of the uh, societal and uh, external risks that they might produce? Is there really so much of a binary alternative between open and closed source technologies? After all, Facebook one of the most proprietary and controversial of tech companies is championing open source AI technology, not because it's committed to some sort of public ideal, because it sees it as smart strategy to pursue its own economic power. So is open source sometimes a little bit of a red herring, a, a seduction which in practice uh, can result in 
big companies becoming ever more powerful. I think you're quite right that um, it's amazing how principle aligns with commercial interest. Uh, and so Meta are definitely kind of a championing the kind of open source approach, I think, for that reason. But that said, I think there is something to the kind of open source revolution that uh, some of the most exciting generative AI companies that are developing are using open source models. Uh, and they believe that it can actually be a, a, a check on uh, some of the kind of closed models that are developing. I think, um, I don't know if you heard Bjorn Ommels uh, from a, a very um, interesting kind of AI researcher here in Munich, who, who I think argues very persuasively that open source models are going to be part of the answer, both in terms of injecting more competition into the economy and also helping uh, inject more sunlight into some of these technologies and enabling us more visibility and transparency about how they are used. Uh, so, you know, it's again one of these massive open debates. Um, I think it's very hard to be definitive at the moment about how this is going to evolve, but it's definitely um, going to be one of the critical debates we're going to have going forward. Ironically, history seems to be literally repeating itself. Back in the 90s, of course, there was a huge debate between Microsoft and the emerging internet about closed versus open. Now it's open AI backed by Microsoft and uh, uh, and the open community. That will play itself out over the next few years. Uh, finally, John, what would you like to see happen in 2024 uh, for the benefit both of innovation and the development of, of, of technology which benefits all of us and not just the few billionaires in Silicon Valley? Well, I think uh, Demis Hassabis has talked about this quite powerfully uh, and expressed his concerns at the time of the kind of Bletchley Park conference that there was in Britain last year that is the monetization machine uh, behind Silicon Valley and developing all of this technology the best one to deliver artificial general intelligence assuming that that is a valid concept and that we will one day get there uh, and he was positing the idea that w there should be uh, some uh, not-for-profit organization, some research organization, something like akin to CERN that could help focus on uh, developing this technology in more of using the scientific method more than the kind of profit motive. And I personally would love to see more thinking evolve in that area. There are some people who I think who are thinking about this and are beginning to uh, kind of formulate ideas for how that could be done in practice. But I think that would be a fascinating development um, rather than just the profit motive driving technology, we had uh, a different model for how we could develop artificial intelligence, which I think we all agree is going to be an incredibly powerful and transformative technology. It's ironic that Demis still works for Google, I mean, so he's wearing two hats. Have you seen any evidence of some of these uh, powerfully backed AI companies developing more innovative corporate structures. Uh, Mustafa Suleiman uh, has a new startup that he at least claims to be different. Anthropic is also the same. Should we be hopeful that OpenAI, which in some senses, for all the drama around it, seems a fairly traditional tech company, uh, that Anthropic or Suleiman startup or some of the others uh, can offer alternative governance structures that make them more accountable and responsible? Well, it's a great question. And I mean, DeepMind did start out as a research organization, and I think they quickly realized that if they wanted to stay at the forefront of AI, they did need to partner with someone who could deliver huge amounts of capital, huge amounts of data, huge amounts of compute power. And so that is the kind of tension at the heart of 
uh, remaining at the leading edge of um, AI. But as I say, I, I do think there are some quite interesting debates developing about how it could be done in a different way. And I wouldn't rule out that um, there might be uh, some kind of break in this model that uh, people could come up with alternative mechanisms for developing. I mean, Anthropic that you mentioned, I think, is a very interesting example of this. Um, OpenAI itself, of course, started out as a not-for-profit organization and then quickly developed in a, a different direction. But I wonder whether we are going to see the next iterations of those kind of impetuses um, coming up with uh, a more viable, sustainable solution.